Well, thanks for joining the conversation today. Uh, before we get started, if you happen to have any of the issues that we we're going to discuss, please make sure that you reach out to someone, a personal care provider, a primary care provider, a friend, a uh, psychologist, or anybody that might be able to provide help to you. As we are going to be discussing uh, issues surrounding depression, anxiety, and other mental issues, please remember this is not a diagnostic talk. This is simply looking at the anatomy, physiology, and psychology of depression and of anxiety and of mental health issues. If you have any of these issues, please make sure you're getting the help that you need. For those of you who don't know where to reach out, I have placed links within the description of this talk. For those of you who have listened to previous uh, podcasts and episodes, you know that I don't like to mention individuals by name. I try to keep stuff as general as possible. For those of you who are just listening because of the title, please note I am not going to be lambasting any individual here. We try to keep things as logically sound as possible, minimizing the number of logical fallacies that we have, including the ad hominem that can come about simply by looking at what the title of this talk happens to be. The origin of this talk is coming from a video clip that was sent to me by a student from a speaker known as Tony Robbins that basically hinted at the fact that depression and mental uh, anxiety issues can be corrected by changing thought processes by basically becoming happy in our thoughts. And it ignores a lot of the underlying physiology and underlying neuroanatomy and neurophysiology that comes into play as it relates to the actual root cause for depression, for anxiety, and for uh, many of the mental health issues that he claims can be corrected through simply changing the mental picture, the mental image, the mental perspective that we have towards our life. And so let's go ahead and let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. Before we get into the bulk of the conversation, let's go ahead and listen to what the quote that the student sent me actually says. And then we'll go ahead and rebut the connotations and the uh, stipulations being made by the speaker, uh, Tony Robbins, in terms of the neurotransmitters at play, the areas of the brain that are going to be involved with the issues, and some of the terminology that he misappropriates and the timeline for some of the aspects that he has uh, indicated within the comments that he makes. What? Yeah. What, is, what do you think, having said that, what do you think is the greatest human skill? Not habit, but mindset and skill. That's a great question. I don't know if I got the, what the greatest, there's so many. It depends on what you want out of your life, right? Yeah. But I think the ability to manage your own mind and emotions is probably one of the single most important. And maybe the second is the ability to influence others because that's what makes you a leader. And hopefully you're doing that for a higher good because <laughs> there are all kinds of leaders, as you know. But I think 
I don't think most people are very good at, at emotional fitness. Mm. Most people are just not as happy as they could be. You know, I did one book, Money Master the Game. It's kind of like this. Yes. There's probably four or five that are really happy people. They go, oh, well, money makes people unhappy. Oh, money, it has nothing to do with money. Money makes you more of what you are. It just magnifies. If you're mean, you have more to be mean with. If you're kind, you have more to give, you know? But I think that most people are just, they haven't learned to manage what's going inside. doesn't matter how much abundance they have. They're still unhappy. We've all seen people that, great comedians, that killed themselves. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, beautiful man, traveled the world, killed himself, you know? Um, you know, fashion designers that have done it. We've all seen all these different people, Kate Spade. And it's like, what? They had everything except they didn't master what's going on here and here. And, and you know, this is why you lived your life the way you have as, as well. So I think that skill set is the most important one. That's why even in the book, my last two chapters, I think are the most important because it's really about the power of the mind. Because like everybody knows about placebos, right? Stopping his discussion there because he goes into a long diatribe uh, and a lot of ego talk. The point he's going to try to make about placebo effect is that it came about in the 1940s during World War II and was related to opioids and morphine, which is very untrue. Uh, the history of placebo effect is centuries old. We've known in medical care and in healthcare that there are sometimes treatments that shouldn't work but do work, have no actual therapeutic effect to it, but somehow develops a therapeutic effect. So before we go into other points he's going to make that are off track, uh, let's go ahead and let's uh, talk about placebo effect and what is actually being attributed to a placebo effect and how we can actually utilize that to kind of explain some of the waxing and waning, some of the uh, increases and decreases that we see with depression and mental uh, health issues that uh, he says we can create, we can correct with some sort of change in uh, mental imaging. What is the placebo effect? When we talk about the placebo effect, there's a whole bunch of different ideas that get offered. One of the offers that usually comes up when we talk about placebo effect is the fact that it has to deal with someone having a response that would be the drug, but where we give them some sort of sugar tablet, some sort of inert medical treatment. The idea of placebo is a very old idea within medical treatment. The First noted indication for use of placebo is in the late 18th century, 1772 to be specific, with the indication of a placebo effect occurring with a reference from 1775. These older references give rise to the more modern references that we think about when we think about placebo effect. But what really is the placebo effect? The placebo effect really is a statistical phenomenon. It's not really a physiological issue, even though we think about it as a physiological issue. It's the indication that my control shows no difference from my treatment. The inert substance is going to provide the same or a better response than the active ingredient that we see within a treatment. But what is it really? And what it's we tend to think about as a placebo effect 
is really a Hawthorne effect. The effect of expectation tends to be a logical fallacy, whereas the Hawthorne effect, while sometimes referenced as a logical fallacy, is not a logical fallacy. While the placebo effect is an effect of statistical analysis based off of differences that we see between my treatment group and my control group, the Hawthorne effect is a psychological effect. It's a psychological effect that's going to change my behavior. And by changing my behavior, I can change the outcome or the physiological responses that I might see from an active treatment. The Hawthorne effect comes about due to the psychological effect that we have based off of a sense of being observed. Sometimes this gets lumped into an observational bias, but it's different than the observational bias. Within the Hawthorne effect, what ends up happening is that we end up having a change in our responsiveness based off of the implicit idea that what is being given to me is going to have an effect on me. And what that does is that will change various aspects of my physiology, various aspects of my psychology. And by changing those two aspects, we can have a treatment effect independent of true active ingredients within the treatment. We see this a lot of times with lifestyle interventions that correspond with or are used in conjunction with active pharmacological agents, active drug treatments, which is one of the reasons why when we look at a lot of the studies pertaining to mental illness issues, depression, anxiety, There's a lot of times where they indicate that the placebo effect is is as strong as the effect of treatment. And the reason for this is because the drugs are not used independent of other treatments. And when I start seeing that, or when I start thinking that, the drug that I'm being given even happens to be an inert drug is going to have an impact. I'm going to start changing the way in which I behave. And by changing the way in which I behave, it can lead to a reduction in the depression, the anxiety, the other aspects of my physiology that can exacerbate issues pertaining to things like depression or anxiety. We see the same thing with uh, pain pain medication based off of the Hawthorne effect and the impact that timing has within the natural course of events within the natural pain cycle, which is going to wax and wane. It's going to increase and decrease over uh, days weeks, months, and even within days based off of minutes and hours of the day. That Hawthorne effect is a psychological phenomenon. It's a phenomenon that we can think about in terms of like the mind-body interactions. The Hawthorne effect is giving me the psychobiological responsing that might explain why treatments occur if I have any type of neuroendocrine regulation within the treatment because I know that changes in my cognitive approach can change my neuroendocrine responses by changing my overall stress levels. Those two can impact the way in which I see or interpret data, which leads to what some people refer to as the placebo effect. And so when we start looking at all this and trying to explain it to our students, to our patients, to our clients, or to ourselves, what we have to remember is that when we're starting to look at what the placebo effect is and what the placebo effect isn't, what we're really looking at is we're looking at 
how well do treatments actually work independent of all other treatment options available? And it's this uh, Hawthorne effect that we interpret as the placebo effect that allows individuals like Mr. Robbins to stipulate that you can change your mental approach. And by changing your mental approach, you're able to get yourself out of a sense of depression, a sense of anxiety, a sense of uh, mental issues. That is not true. And it's not true because what we're actually doing is we are shortchanging the person. The root cause for depression, the root cause for anxiety, has to deal with neurophysiological, neuroanatomical structural changes that are different in the brains that we see with individuals that have depression and anxiety and other mental issues that we don't see with normal individuals. Normal individuals can feel anxious, normal individuals can feel depressed, can feel sad, but sadness and depression in a neurotypical individual is different than the depression that we're talking about when we talk about someone suffering from depression. You cannot think away depression. You cannot change your mental approach in order to alleviate depression. You can't generate, we'll listen here to another clip, a winner's mentality. And by generating a winner's mentality, you're able to restructure the way in which the brain works. Some of the next points that are going to be raised are slightly inaccurate. And we'll talk about those after we listen to the next little bit of clip. I think it's understanding there's no replacement for persistence as simplistic as that is. It's like, you know, disappointment either destroys you or drives you and you have to decide which one it's going to be. If you don't consciously decide, there's always going to be more BS for you to deal with. And I think that's why I think, you know, when I do my events, the reason I do the 12 hours a day, it's not because I like talking. It's just that I can tell you something all day long or I can get you to build the muscle. Yeah. And the build of muscle is by experiencing. And I always tell people, a yes. belief a belief's a poor substitute for an experience. Like, I could have a belief about you, but now I experience you. So I get to know who you are, right? The same thing is true as, like, you have a belief about China. You have a belief about working out. So I try to give people experiences that are so profound. And then, you know, the, the studies they did, they found people 12 months later, 11 months later, we're still in the middle of COVID. They did my digital seminar. And, you know, they measured my body, like... But they did the same measurements on them in different parts of the world and saw the exact same mirroring process. Wow. The average person- Even digitally. Even digitally. Yeah. 71% drop in negative emotions, 53% improvement in positive emotions. And 11 months later, in the middle of COVID, it helped because it's a biochemical change. So when people say, oh, I'm trying, I write, that's, I write books because- So I'll stop the clip there. He goes on to discuss something in terms of neuroendocrine and uh, neurobiology that is a little bit off in terms of what the intention that he was attempting to go at, where he was talking about testosterone cortisol ratios and a winner blood type. And what we look at, we look at testosterone cortisol ratios. It's not about what's happening in terms of neurobiology. It's about what's happening in terms of musculoskeletal physiology, in particular, musculoskeletal physiology, recovery issues. 
where we want to regulate the amount of cortisol in circulation following exertion while maximizing the amount of testosterone or androgens in circulation that will allow for maximal anabolic responses, maximal amount of recovery to take place following an exertion. It's not a acute response. It's not a within session response or within competition response. While increased testosterone has an impact on performance athletically, it's really going to take effect in the recovery aspect of the uh, athletic endeavors in terms of gains in performance that take place outside of competition. With that in mind, there is issues that come into play in terms of the effect that cortisol has on neurobiology and neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, as it relates to its effect on limbic system structures. In particular, limbic limbic system structures that are associated with issues of depression, anxiety, that the speaker, Mr. Robbins, was hinting at, at being able to correct through uh, a change in mental uh, picture, change in how I perceive myself and my environment, where he kind of uh, lambasted the, I don't understand how people can be so uh, sad that they would be suicidal. And this goes into kind of the heart of not understanding that we have an actual neural uh, function, a neuroatypical behavior taking place within individuals that have these actual depression issues, which is different than feeling sad. Sadness and depression are uh, linked within a continuum, but they're not the same exact thing. When we're looking at depression, we're looking at anxiety, we're looking at changes within structures within the brain referenced as the limbic system. And what this uh, limbic system is going to do is it's going to regulate my emotional responses and my uh, drive responses, along with uh, linked to other higher cortical cognitive functions, my thinking, my rationalities. And when we have an imbalance in three distinct neurotransmitters in particular, uh, norepinephrine, sometimes referred to as noradrenaline, dopamine, and serotonin, we have and can have issues with anxiety and depression that uh, can come about and do come about in terms of the depression issues. And what ends up happening and what we've seen in terms of the neurophysiology is depression is usually linked with uh, responsiveness to dopamine and responsiveness to serotonin in particular, but we also have issues with norepinephrine. And cortisol as a stress hormone causes a change in how the receptors for those neurotransmitters are going to function. And by changing how the receptors of those neurotransmitters will function changes the nature that the neurons are functioning. And when we change the way in which the neurons are functioning, we change the way in which the brain functions. And when we change the way in which the brain functions, we change our outward behavior, which is why we can make 
statements about the fact that, oh, well, if you just change your behavior, you're going to end up changing your brain activity. But what you're really doing is you're really doing a, a correlative effect. Yes, I can for a short period of time change the way in which I have uh, my behavior. I can expend a lot of energy, a lot of mental energy, a lot of uh, fuel source to make myself behave a specific way so that I don't appear to be as depressed or as anxious as I would normally do. But at the same time, the, there's a natural course of action that takes place within all of these functions where we will have high points and low points in what's referred to as a normal feedback loop, where we basically will be oscillating, going up and down, between highs and lows. They're naturally occurring. It's not like we think about in terms of like manic depression issues where we're very, very high and then we're very, very low. It's just this natural up-down kind of seesaw or swing action that we see. And so based off of where I'm at in that natural swinging action, I can correlate or I can associate distinct behaviors or distinct mindsets with improvements in my overall function. And we can end up having this false analogy, this false association that, oh, if I have this kind of positive mental attitude, I'm going to be able to correct all of the issues that I have. And that's not true. It's, it's, a fa- it's false. Uh, I want to call it a falsehood, but it's, it's leading me in the wrong direction. It's taking me off track from how I should be looking at the issue. I can use behaviors, I can use changes in my activity that's going to lead to changes in my stress hormones, cortisol, uh, epinephrine, uh, that's in circulation, that's going to change the way in which the neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin are functioning. That's going to allow me to have a more more normalized level of dopamine, more normalized level of serotonin action for a short period of time. But that doesn't mean I can go ahead and skip medication or I can skip other factors that I might be using within a uh, holistic therapy. And that's the whole idea here when we start looking at the uh, neuroatypical Uh, treatments, particularly when they're neurotypical treatments that are necessary in order to allow for uh, social functionality to take place, where uh, we can have uh, reduction in depression, reduction in anxiety, reduction in uh, suicidal thoughts that allow me to, or reduction in self-harm thoughts that allow me to function within a social network, within society, more appropriately. The ideas don't go away. The cognitive functions don't go away simply because I'm thinking more positively or I have grounded myself more realistically. That doesn't negate the neurophysiological, neuroanatomical, neurobiological foundation for the issue. And that's where 
uh, we have to be very careful listening to these, ad these advocates, this idea that if you just change how you approach the problem, you're going to be able to correct the problem. Is there, ne is there a need? Is the necessity for cognitive interventions there? Yes. Group talk, group activities are beneficial, but they're beneficial when used in conjunction with other therapeutic interventions. It's not a standalone issue. Does that mean that you should be skipping meds? No. You should be using the medications that are necessary to help out with the neurotransmitter imbalance that you have. Should you be doing things that help reduce stress level that is going to allow for a more appropriate response to the neurotransmitters that you're able to produce or able to respond to? Absolutely. But once again, you got to go back and you have to look, okay, what is the underlying root cause for the issue? And the underlying root cause for the issue that we think about when we think about having depression issues or anxiety issues is not about my mindset. It's about what's happening with the neurons. And in most cases, we're looking at dopamine, dopaminergic or dopamine neurons that are either not producing enough dopamine, producing enough dopamine, but having too much of the enzymes that are digesting the dopamine or not having enough receptors for that dopamine. Or on the opposite end, we have changes or uh, fluctuations within serotonin production and serotonin responsiveness that is going to impact the way in which the dopamine is going to function. And so we have to think about is, you have to think about dopamine and serotonin kind of working in a seesaw fashion within, within the brain in terms of what it's doing neurophysiologically, what it's doing to the neuron's activity, where dopamine tends to be more of a stimulant whereas serotonin tends to be more of a depressant. So dopamine is going to increase the activity of the neurons that it's interacting with, whereas serotonin is going to uh, reduce the activity of the neurons it's interacting with. And so when we start looking at people with depression issues, the depression issue is stemming from this kind of imbalance between responsiveness for dopamine and for serotonin, which is why we start looking at the therapeutic, pharmacological therapeutic interventions. What we're doing is we're prescribing medication that is meant to help regulate that imbalance that takes place. And it's no amount of, or there's no amount of positive thinking or framing within my mental perspective that's going to change that issue, that fundamental underlying issue. Can I learn to live with that issue? Yes, but at a cost. And that's where people who have the, the imbalances that lead to anxiety issues, that lead to depression issues, tend to have issues with in the limbic system, within the structures of the amygdala, within the structures of the hippocampus, within the structures of the basal ganglion, uh, that tend to inappropriately respond to stressful events. 
And it's that inappropriate response to stressful events that's going to trigger the depression issues, the anxiety issues that get manifested, both cognitively as well as physiologically. And from those manifestations, we see all of the anxiety and depression behaviors. And what we're trying to do when we look at uh, social treatments to those, those issues, group treatments to those issues, is looking at how can we better react, how can we better respond to stressful events. That's where a lot of the cognitive treatments come into play. But at the same time, we cannot negate the neurotransmitter response, the neuron activity that is at the root cause for the depression and anxiety issues. And to say, I don't understand how the person can't be happy because they have X, Y, and Z without understanding that the person with these issues are trying, constantly trying to alleviate an abnormal response to stress, an abnormal response within the brain to interpreting stress that can manifest itself in a whole bunch of ways, can combine on itself, can compound on itself, can compile on other stresses where small little stresses for people who function neurotypically becomes a very large and unsurmountable stress for someone that's functioning neuroatypically. And so when we start to have to separate the responsiveness that we see or the suggestions that we might offer to people who have anxiety or have depression issues, it's not about changing from a loser mentality to a winner mentality or being uh, grateful for having success or what you might see as success, being the external observer that the person does not see it as success from the internal observer. The, the old adage or the old thought is that the people with anxiety and depression uh, are, quote-unquote, fighting demons. And it's not really that they're fighting demons. It's that they're trying to get a cognitive balance point that takes place. You can think about it kind of like riding a surfboard in the waves or riding a skateboard on, on the ground or trying to skate wearing roller skates or roller blades or ice skates on ice where you're trying to constantly find a balance point in between moving and falling. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to move and control all of the other parts of your body so that you don't fall. So you're able to keep moving. And when the person with depression, the person with anxiety is manifesting issues, it's where they have started to tip forward too much, where they're going to nose over, or where they've tipped too far back and they're going to fall backwards. And a lot of what the manifestations that we see is the outward responses that take place in an attempt to get rid of 
the excessive neural activity that is occurring because of the imbalance within the neurotransmitters. It's not about having a bad mindset or a poor mindset or a not winner mindset. It's about having this neuroatypical response to the stresses that should not push somebody over the, the edge, but is pushing somebody over the edge. And being cognizant of that fact means that we can't say, oh, you can think yourself into success. You can think yourself into failure. You can think yourself out of depression. You can think yourself into depression if you're normal. Yes, if you are somebody that has these neuroanatomical, neurophysiological, neurobiological root foundational issues with neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine and are underneath high amounts of stress, then you can't because of the fact that it's something that is within the responses taking place that are not from a cognitive standpoint typical. It's where I have a set point that is not what the rest of society would view as being typical. My set point is different than your set point in that case. And the problem is, is that when we start having too much sway in the output of neurotransmitters, in particular the dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, we can end up having a psychotic issue. The psychotic issue can manifest itself as a bout of mania if I happen to be manic depression. It could manifest itself as clinical depression if I simply have depression issues. It can manifest itself as an anxiety attack if I have anxiety issues. And if it's something where the stress is too much and the depression is too much or the anxiety is too much, it can lead to the suicidal or self-harm tendencies that can come about. It's something where if you happen to know somebody that happens to have depression, anxiety issues, to because of how you approach stressful situations that might act as triggers to those individuals. And everybody has different triggers. Everybody has different stresses. The jobs that we might see, that others might be jealous of us having may be causing excessive stresses to ourselves if we happen to have these neuroatypical issues where we might have to be the jester because everybody laughs when we do something silly, do something funny, and we want the reward response because we get a, a spike of dopamine, and that spike of dopamine normalizes our neurological behaviors, and by normalizing our neurological functions or neurological behaviors, we feel at ease, we feel normal. And so we try to get that again, and we try to get that again, and we try to get that again. But the problem is, is that over time, we start seeing those, oh, I got to make people laugh, 
as a punishment where it becomes i have to be the life of the party and it becomes a stress because i constantly have to make other people laugh i constantly have to entertain other people and if i'm constantly having to have to entertain other people then i have to constantly be on and if there's times where i'm not on people become disappointed and that disappoint the the disappointment that i see in others is going to increase my stress and by increasing my stress is going to increase my anxiety by by changing the neuroendocrine interactions the hormone neurotransmitter interactions the brain hormone interactions that's going to lead to additional depression issues So when we start thinking about what is being presented to us by speakers such as Mr. Robbins presenting this idea about changing mindset and eliminating the depression and getting emotionally right and training to be emotionally strong, for someone that has depression issues, it's different than for someone who doesn't have the depression issues. It's, for lack of a better analogy, it's training someone to run a marathon who can run on both, both legs versus having someone trying to run a marathon with no legs. The struggles that the person with no legs is going to present is going to be much different than the struggles that the person with legs will present. And we have to be cognizant of that. We have to be aware of that when we uh, start to interact with individuals. And for most individuals, it's very difficult to see if there is the underlying issues that might lead to depression or anxiety for that person because it's something that we don't normally outwardly see unless we happen to see them in a depressed state. People who are depressed don't normally walk around depressed. They don't normally walk around as if they are uh, an Eeyore, where they're, they're sad. Do they express sadness? Yes. But what tends to happen is they tend to put a facade on when they're out in social gatherings. And it's a... A tool that they use to compensate for the depression that they might have and or they try to do things to uh, elicit responses from in from others within their social network that gives them acceptance that gives them reward responses like the comedians trying to make you laugh all the time or the person that uh is finding new and interesting things to eat because eating causes a reward response. And so when we start looking at how we go about approaching this idea about mindset and thinking ourselves out of depression and out of anxiety, it's not about 
a positive mindset or a negative mindset. It's not about having a winner's mindset or a loser's mindset. It's about understanding what is the underlying root cause for the issues. And if you do not understand the underlying root cause for the issue, you have to be willing and uh, able to accept what the person has is what the person has. thanks for listening. Uh, if you have any uh, depression, anxiety, or other mental issues or think you might have them, please make sure you reach out to someone. If you uh, don't have anybody to reach out, I've placed in the uh, descriptor for this plot, for this episode some links to online resources for people who have mental health uh, issues or mental health questions. There are resources out there. You are not alone if you happen to feel like you have any of these uh, depression issues or mental health issues. Don't let the uh, fallacies of others push you into thinking that all I got to do is think a certain way in order to get rid of this depression or this anxiety because it actually is something that is taking place within your biology and it's something that you shouldn't blame others for. There's uh, some statistics out there that indicate that it is affecting uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five million individuals. And so it's a relatively common psychological, cognitive, behavioral issue. There are some diet and nutrition issues that come about that can exacerbate depression issues and can alleviate depression issues. There are a lot of exercise routines out there that can help alleviate depression issues. But if you want more information or if you need more information, please use the links available to you in the descriptor. Thanks for listening again. Please make sure you're following us on all of the various platforms that we're publishing on, whether it's here on the podcast, on YouTube, on Instagram. We're on threads now as well. Links are also in the descriptor. And there will be uh, short YouTube video clips related to this discussion. There are also on YouTube some clips related to the neuroanatomy, neurophysiology that uh, I went through in the discussion about the limbic system and the neurotransmitter pathways and what dopamine and serotonin are doing, as well as what norepinephrine or noradrenaline does within the brain and within our cognitive behaviors.